Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get more insight now on Treasury's Fed policy, where this economy is heading with Al Rabel. He is the CEO of Kane Anderson Capital Advisors, joining us on set along with Bloomberg's Shanali Basic. Al, great to have you in person with us. And it feels like economists have been tripping over themselves to push back uh, their recession calls. Maybe you're starting to see that priced out of the bond market, that recession trade. Are you still braced for a hard landing? I'm still in the hard landing camp. I, I know we sort of have consensus around soft landing at this point, but I think the reality is that we've already landed. Core inflation is down to 3% plus. Core inflation minus shelter is down to 1%. So the reality in my view is that we've already landed and that the Fed will do what it has historically done, which is go to, is wait too late to get started and then go too far. And I believe that they've already gone too far. Now we'll see what Mr. Powell says on Friday. We'll see what happens in September, but we've got $17 million of household debt. We've got 12, uh, excuse me, trillion. Excuse me. That's a lot. <laughs> $17 trillion of household debt, $12 trillion of mortgage debt, $1.6 trillion of auto debt, a trillion plus of student debt, which as we know is going to have to start actually paying on that debt sometime soon. So we're a consumer-driven economy. I think we're in for, you know, we're in for a rough road ahead. Speaking of the rough road ahead, you look at the five-year, uh, the two-year, sorry, over at 504 nearly today, and you look at a 433 handle on the 10-year, and you think about the trajectory of rates, and what else has to break as rates stay this elevated? Where has the market not yet seen pain that you expect? Well, you know, you were talking about the regional banking downgrade. I mean, we're very close to that. We've got a big real estate debt business and a big real estate equity business. On the debt side, we've got a trillion and a half of maturities coming in the next 18 months. Obviously, that's going to be difficult to do in an illiquid environment. Regional banks are a big provider of capital, or historically have been. Now, private credit is coming in, private equity is coming in and filling some of that gap. But the reality is there is a lot of mortgage debt that has to be refinanced, and those rates are a lot higher. And I can tell you that a lot of those Excel spreadsheets just don't work. Well, what about the default rates here? Because you have seen a few defaults start to hit the market, but nothing so crazy yet. Do you expect that there's going to be significant distress? And frankly, you've made your name in some of this real estate distress. At what point do you find assets that are cheap enough to buy? Well, it's, it's, it's true. I say I've lived through 88, 98, 08, and the pandemic, and, and so I've been through a number of different crises. Um, I don't see capitulation yet. It is a lagging indicator. I mean, the issue is that you've got a 12-month lag on shelter really being factored into the inflationary dynamics. So, you know, I think we're going to see capitulation and prices that are interesting and private credit um, and real estate credit get very interesting from a buyer perspective later this year and into the first half of next year. What's going to be the catalyst for you to start picking up some of that, that credit? 
we are already doing that, I think it will pick up pace going forward. And the reality is that you have to have capitulation. I, on the regional banking side, we have 4,500 banks, plus or minus, in this country. No other country has 10% has of that. Mm -hmm. I think we're in the early stages of a recalibration of our banking sector, which is really a confidence game. And as we know, and we saw with SVB, Deposits can go away in, I won't say nanoseconds, but very, very quickly. So even if you have a strong deposit base. So I can tell you that a lot of what Mr. Powell is, has done with rate rises, I believe you know, I, would, I would be in the camp of pause now and don't rule out rate decreases so quickly in the first half of next year because the liquidity dynamics are doing your job for you at this point in time. You say that we have 4,500 banks right now, but you don't think we'll have that going forward. How much of that is part of the calculus for Powell and for the Fed to decide how to proceed with rates, that, cons that consolidation in regional banks? It's part of the calculus. You know, I, I don't think he's looking at that per se. I mean, I think he wants an orderly transition, mm -hmm. if you will. And I think, you know, we've, you know, we've seen the tip of the iceberg on, on banking consolidation, but very much the tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, their talking points are the banking sector strong, there's not an issue, so I think they want to see this happen organically over time. Hopefully we don't have a catalyst that makes it, you know, that turns this from a slow-moving train wreck into a crisis. Um, I, I actually think that we're looking more at a slow-moving train wreck. We all sort of see what's coming, but, and we won't have something like the GFC or March of 2020 again. Um, but I will say that you know, we're prepared for it should that happen. And make, maybe markets do as well, because you look at what's happening in bank stocks, they've really stayed at those levels that they dropped to in March. But wrap that into what you see in private credit, because the point has been made many times that this is a great opportunity for private credit. But what's the risk there? Well, the risk there is obviously default. So it's not throw a dart and you've got SOFR at five and a quarter percent and you're getting 7% or 8% above that and 14% current yield and isn't that great. And I do think investors are looking at 14% plus or minus current yields on the private credit side. And even if you factor in a modest default rate, it still looks a lot better than it historically has. That said, I think the players who are disciplined, who understand it, who have been together for a long period of time, private credit did well during the GFC, did pretty well during the pandemic as well. I think it will hold up here um, as it has in the past, but it's not all players are equal and, right. and it certainly requires How many discipline. people are flying fast and loose? You know, if you talk to some of the big credit providers, they'll tell you this is the golden opportunity. You're getting eight to 12 percent back because there is this liquidity constraint. But at the same time, there are a lot of new players. Are you worried that they're getting in over their skis? I don't see the fast and loose yet. I see a lot of dry powder right now. I see a lot of anticipation of huge opportunity. We're going to see this. We're getting ready for it. I haven't seen, as I said, capitulation and that opportunity present itself in the form of transactions. You're starting to see some deals get done. I'm not too concerned about that. I think the market needs liquidity, mm. and there will be winners and losers, at least on a relative scale. So I'm not too concerned about too much private capital flooding the markets or poor deals getting done. I'm more concerned about Mr. Powell and the fact that, in my view, we've come too far too fast and that the, and that the orientation is still, if not at least towards future tightening, no time in the next year 
loosening. And I would just base that on data and look at the lagging, the lagging dynamics of shelter and, and what is sort of 12 months in arrears. So I, I think the job's already done. All right, Al, unfortunately, we got to leave it there. Really enjoyed this. That is Al Rabel. He is the CEO of Kane Anderson Capital Advisors and, of course, Bloomberg's Shanali Bassett. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.